Well, good evening. How was your brownie? You didn't have a brownie? I had two of everything. Don't tell Shelly. Wow, this is a great group. Welcome. It's so good to see you all here. I want to thank you so much for praying for our family. As you know, we were in Albania for five weeks. It was a bittersweet time after nine years living there and serving in Albania, just transitioning off of the mission field, coming back. Bittersweet. So many friends, so many coffees and meals. You would have thought I would have gained like 20 pounds in five weeks, how often we ate. But it was just a whirlwind. You just blink, and then we're back at IH. And many of you know we were actually traveling through Istanbul the day of the attack. We were there in that airport six hours before, six or seven hours before. So again, it just makes you realize God's sovereign, God's in control. And uh, so thank you so much for praying for us, for loaning us your luggage. And some of your bags are still in Albania, so we'll pray them back, hopefully. (laughs) Thanks for praying for Shelly, too, so she's doing well, just uh, still recovering. Well, it's a joy to be with you preaching the Word of God. I trust that's why you're here tonight, as we have the chance to fellowship, eat brownies, play some floor hockey. Uh, I can't wait to see Pastor Ramey play floor hockey. You guys don't realize how incredibly talented Pastor Ramey is. I mean, senior pastors, you know, they're not always the most athletic types, but I'm telling you, Ken will surprise you, so I want to be on Ken's team. But we're here for fellowship, but it's also a great time just to open up the Word of God. And so, if you would open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 25, in our series on parables. Tonight, we're going to talk about the parable of the talents, a lesson about being a faithful steward. Well, I'm sure you've heard this expression, when the cat's away, the mice will play. You've heard that before. Some of you know that only too well. When we first moved to Texas back in 1999, I took a job right here in Houston as an executive recruiter. It's the first time I had ever done business, so I was just kind of learning, like I had to wear a coat and tie to work. Well, I got to tell you. When our boss was in the office, we were the most hard-working bunch you had ever seen. Again, I was a headhunter, executive recruiter. We were making cold calls. I mean, we were making so many cold calls, my phone was on fire, setting up meetings. We were building the business. And then my boss took a trip to New York, and I realized there was another side to that coin. Because the minute he left the office, all of a sudden, the whole attitude of the office changed. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. One guy played solitaire for six hours straight. I mean, his eyes were twitching. He's like, "Ah." I didn't know you could play solitaire that long. Another guy, five-hour lunch break. I didn't know you could do a five-hour lunch break. Another guy still didn't even come in. When the cat's away, the mice will play. Well, without supervision, without accountability, people tend to do whatever they want, regardless of consequences, regardless of wasted opportunities. And sadly, if we're not careful, we as Christians even can operate with the same mindset And instead of maximizing opportunities for God's glory, we instead waste them. Because I don't know about you, but the return of Jesus Christ, that theological truth, seems so far away sometimes, doesn't it? Well, this leads us to the theme of tonight's parable of the talents. In fact, John MacArthur defines this parable as the tragedy of wasted opportunity. Let me get you the context. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 and 51, Jesus has just exhorted his disciples to be faithful. 
He says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? He says, Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes in verse 46. He's saying, Disciples, be faithful, be sensible. And then here in chapter 25, both the parable of the ten virgins, which we're not going to look at tonight, and this parable, the parable of the talents, focus on men's readiness for Jesus' coming. You do know Jesus is coming back, don't you? I'm sorry, do you know that? He's coming back. He will return But the parable of the talents focuses specifically on the aspect of men's readiness manifested in working. You see, it's not enough to wait in readiness for Christ's return. It's not enough. For we must be constantly working in humble obedience to his will while we wait. So while we wait expectantly, we work Faithfully. So the parable of the talents illustrates for us four steps to properly respond to spiritual opportunities. If we are to be found faithful when Christ returns, and I trust that's your heart tonight, then we must follow these four steps. So let me read Matthew 25, starting in verse 14 all the way to verse 30. It's one of the longer parables, and let's read our story tonight. Matthew 25, verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who would receive the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. And in the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who also had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow, what a story. What a contrast. What a comparison. So this first step to properly respond to spiritual opportunities is this. Receive the responsibility. The first step is receive the responsibility. Notice in verses 14 and 15. Now, you'll notice in most of your Bibles, the small phrase, it is, is in italics, indicating that these words are not actually found in the original Greek text. It says, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey. 
Well, the reason for this is that the subject and the verb, at least in the original Greek, are actually being carried over from verse 1. Notice what it says in verse 1. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins. And then he tells the parable of the ten virgins. And so here in the Greek text, we understand the subject and the verb from verse 1 is being carried over into verse 4. You could almost read it like this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared just like a man about to go on a journey. That helps set the context. Jesus is still teaching about the kingdom here. He's referring to all of those who profess to know and obey Christ, including both the truly saved and the professing Christians who are, in fact, unbelievers, like myself. I became a Christian multiple times. I professed to receive Jesus. I grew up at a church that taught me the Bible. Many times I'd go to camp, throw my watch and say, God, I'm going to give you my time. Throw it into the fireplace. Throw pine cones. I was dedicating my life time and time again, professing to be a follower of Christ, but in my heart of hearts and in my life proved that I was not. I loved me, not Christ. And so in this parable, we understand he's talking about the visible church in the New Testament. He's talking about now. In the context of Matthew chapter 25, it's clear Christ is referring to this New Testament church that exists before Christ's second coming. So both the foolish virgins and this faithless slave represent those who profess to belong to Christ, but who are in fact counterfeit in their belief. And this counterfeit faith is demonstrated through their lack of faithfulness and the clear disconnect between their talk and their walk. Do we have that in the church today? The evangelical Protestant American church, full of people who say, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? To be a follower of Christ, to think like Jesus, to speak like Jesus, to act like Jesus. And so when they come to church, what do they do? They act like Christ. But when they go back to their home and their job and the quietness of their heart, they go back to their real self. Again, the American church is becoming more and more filled with people like this. And so that's who he's talking about here. Here we have the setting of the story described to us in verse 14 and 15. It says that a man is planning on going on a journey, a long journey for many months, perhaps many years. Again, it was common in that day, in Jesus' day, for a wealthy master to have certain servants or special slaves who would manage aspects of his household and business while traveling. Notice that the master entrusts his possessions to them in order to ensure that his estate was well managed. And to each of these three slaves, the master gives them a number of talents according to their ability. Now this word talent In the New Testament, a talent refers to a weight of precious metal. And so a talent of silver would be less valuable than a talent of gold. A talent had an equal measure and weight, but whatever kind of precious metal it was would determine its value. In this case, this was a lot of money. And so we understand that. But Christ here is emphasizing that each of the slaves had the same accountability to steward their master's money given their differing levels of individual abilities. And so the focus is not so much on how much the talent represented. There's so many commentators that say, well, it was this much in dollars today, and I don't think that's the point Jesus is making. Really, it's the issue of how the slaves responded according to their ability. And so the slave who received five talents received them because he was capable of handling, of managing those five talents. You know, the master didn't give the two-talent slave five talents because the two-talent slave could only handle two talents according to his ability. And so the master knew each slave's capability, was confident to give them the responsibility to manage and increase his wealth. And then notice what the text says. He entrusts his possessions to them. He gives the talents. And then at the end of verse 15, what does it say? 
he left. He went on his journey. Now, because the parable illustrates the kingdom of heaven, the master in the story is obviously Christ. The journey represents his time away from the earth between his past ascension into heaven, which we find at the end of Mark 16, verse 19, and his future second coming. So again, he's talking about the time between when he ascended up into heaven and the time when he's going to come back in the future and return. The three slaves represent professing believers, self-proclaimed members of the local church whom Christ has entrusted with various resources to use on his behalf until he returns. And so the talents, therefore, don't represent natural gifts and abilities. You will often hear this parable taught, and when you think of a talent, I don't know about you, but I immediately think of a talent show. What's the point of a talent show? What's the point? I mean, I bet Kyle is an incredible tap dancer. You know, he's got the talent. Uh, you look like a tap dancer. Are you, you have had some tap dancing in your background? Sometimes. A little bit. Okay. He's a very gifted youth pastor. So a talent show, you bring him up here, and what does Kyle do? He shows off his talent, his ability, his gift. Uh, this talent, this word talent, is not necessarily talking specifically about someone's natural abilities but rather all of the resources given by God to be enjoyed by a man, including such things as the message of the gospel. You realize the message of the gospel was given to you, Christian, for what? To save you so that you could what? Have a good life, have a vacation, be healthy, wealthy. Is that why he gave you the gospel? Oh, so you don't go to hell. To save you from hell. Why do you have the gospel, Christian? To save you, to open your eyes to the truth so that you would in turn pass it on. He's been entrusting you with this. What are you doing with it? So it could be the gospel. It could be your time. It could be your health. It could be your intellect, your money, your possessions, including Kyle's tap dancing ability. When Kyle tap dances, he does it to the glory of God. Boy, that's an image I'm going to have a hard time getting out of my head. Whether you eat or drink or whether you tap dance, do all to the glory of God. And even for genuine Christians, this would include spiritual gifts, which we see in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. And so when you think of What the talent is representing in this parable, you're thinking of everything that God has entrusted to you, everything he's given to you so that you would in turn thank him for it, take it, and then turn around and use it for God and his kingdom and his glory. You got that? That's what he's talking about. So when God entrusts us with his possessions, with his resources, we call this stewardship. You think stewardship, what is stewardship? Well, it's the management of God's possessions, and today, specifically, God's work through the local church. It began in the garden when God entrusted Adam and Eve. He took them and put them in the garden and said what? Multiply, work, till the land, represent me on earth. That's when it began, and it continues to us today, because after all, who owns it all? Who owns it? Who owns the cattle in a thousand hills, Texans? Now, you didn't say that like you meant it. God owns them cattle, right? He owns it all. We must remember it's God who gives us the power to make wealth, Deuteronomy 8, 17 to 18. Everything you have Every ability that you have to make that wealth, to have those things and those possessions, came from the good, gracious hand of God. It's God who gives us the spiritual gifts that we might serve one another as stewards of God's grace, 1 Peter 4.10. It's God who entrusts us with the gospel so that we might boldly preach Christ 
to the nations, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, and so on and so forth. I could just go verse after verse after verse talking about the things that God has entrusted to us for our benefit, our good, to help others, either in the church or in the community, to the glory of God. So the first step to properly respond to spiritual opportunities is to receive the responsibility. How many talents has God given you? How many resources do you have at your disposal? Acknowledge God gave those to you. Realize he owns it all and commit to using them for him. Receive the responsibility. There's a second step. React rightly. The second step is react rightly. Verses 16 to 18. Now notice the reaction that the three slaves have after being given the responsibility by the master. Notice the first two slaves were both eager to serve their master. In verse 16, first word you see is what? When they felt like it. When they fit it in their busy schedule. What does it say? Immediately. They didn't waste any time using the resources given them. Immediately. They couldn't wait to begin pleasing their master through faithful obedience. To immediately obey is the natural response of one who has received so much grace and love from the master. That's why when John says in 1 John 5, 3, that his commandments are not burdensome. To the Christian, why are the commandments of God not burdensome? Well, you have to think about what John says right before he says that. The love of God. To those who have experienced the love of God, what is the natural response of one who has experienced the love of God? To respond in love. If God loved me first, if God loved me sacrificially, if God loved me when I didn't deserve it, in fact, when I deserved something totally different, how could I not in turn love God with everything and love you, secondly? How could I not? That commandment is not burdensome, it's a joy. Look what he's done for me. And so these two servants, they immediately go and they say, yes, sir, yes, Lord, yes, master. And what do they do? The one who had received the five talents went and traded with them. He traded. It's interesting, this word carries the idea of doing business over a period of time. It's not like the servant logged into his E-Trade account and bought, you know, 200 shares of Apple and then instantly doubled it the next day. That's not the idea. The idea is over a period of time engaging in good business practices to the point where he traded, he worked, he did business over time to the point where his investments paid off. These two slaves, both the five-talent and the two-talent slave, continued to be faithful to use the master's money. And in fact, what did they do? Five talents became what? Ten. Two talents became what? Okay, I'm not a math whiz either, but this is pretty simple. Two talents became what? Four. Thank you. They were faithful. The point is not that they all needed to be five-talent superstars. You ever feel that way sometimes? You have to be something more, something better. It's not that we all have to be five-talent superstars. Rather, it's that we need to be good stewards of what we've been given according to the God-given abilities and resources. And that's what Jesus is talking about. If you look in chapter 24, verse 45, he says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave. He's just gotten done telling his disciples that's what he's after. Faithfulness. He wants us to be faithful. I love what the famous pastor D.L. Moody said. He said this, If this world is going to be reached, I am convinced that it must be done by men and women of average talent. After all, 
there are comparatively few people in this world who have great talents. Like, Chris, that's not very encouraging. That doesn't make me feel very good. Are you saying I'm of average talent? Yeah. Boy, when can we have Chris back to do this again? Think about it. How many John Pipers are there? How many Elizabeth Elliots are there? I'm sorry, they killed his husband and his four other friends, and she went back to tell them the good news? It's rare if you think about it. Our books are lined with the stories and the histories of the five talent superstars. And then there's you, and then there's me. Average. That does not make me feel good about myself. Well, thankfully, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not, is it? God hasn't called you to be a five-talent superstar. He's called you to take the resources and abilities that he's given you and go and be faithful. Because you know what the cool thing is? You know what D.L. Moody did with that attitude, with that mindset? He went and trained. He inspired hundreds of average Christians, just like you, just like me, to be faithful stewards of their God-given resources and responsibilities. And as a result, thousands upon thousands were reached with the gospel through inner-city evangelism by everyday ordinary Christians of average talent. And that's what it takes. See, the goal is faithfulness, not to be a superstar. That's why the Lord promises us in 1 Corinthians 3.8 that each will receive his own reward according to his own, her own labor. What's the point? It's not equal return. We don't all have to make five to take what God gives us and make five. It's not equal return. That's not the point but rather equal effort according to ability. Did you get that? It's not equal return that God is after. What God wants is equal effort according to the God-given resources and abilities that he's given you. It's a good reminder for us when we're tempted to compare ourselves to other believers. Oh, if only I could preach like Pastor Ramey. Then I'd really be something. If only I could sing a song and play the guitar and play the piano and play the drums and the harmonica like Chris. I mean, is there anything that guy doesn't play? I hear he's a good dancer too, you and Kyle. I mean, Kirsten, where are you? How did you get such a complete package? The guy does it all. If only I had that, then I would really do something for the kingdom. If only I was like Renda Walters, servant. I mean, that lady can throw a party, can't she? She has the gift of hospitality. She's just overflowing with hospitality. You go to, you go to her house, she makes you feel like a king and a queen, doesn't she? If only I was like Renda, then I'd really be useful for the kingdom and the church. We want to compare ourselves. You know what? I hate to tell you this, but you are not Ken Ramey. And you are not Chris and you're not Renda. You know who you are? You're you. God has uniquely, wonderfully made you and created you in exactly the right way. It's not a competition. You're not competing with one another. Because who are we all called to be like? There's the standard, there's the goal. Even when Paul says, follow me, really, what is he encouraging us to do? Follow me as I follow after Christ. The point is always Christ. It's always pointing to Christ. It's trying to be like Christ, think like Christ, speak like Christ. God has made you unique, and he's calling you to be faithful with what he's given you, whether you have five talents or one. Some of you have a half a talent, and that's okay. Use that half a talent that God gave you for the glory of God. 
Well, notice what it says in verse 18. But, uh uh-oh, we have a comparison about to happen here. The third slave has a radically different reaction to the responsibility given by the master. It says, but he who received the one talent went away, and what does he do with it? Apparently, he has the talent of digging. (laughs) He digs a hole and hides the master's money. He doesn't faithfully use this opportunity to invest what the master had given him. Instead, he buries it in the ground to hide it. He got pirate syndrome. X marks the spot, baby. I hope he had a map. Otherwise, he'd be one of those guys who are like, where was it again, the tree, ten paces from the rock? He buries it in the ground? Well, again, this was common way to protect valuables during Jesus' day. It was common. They didn't have banks. They didn't have uh, Fort Knox. So you would go and you'd hide it. You'd bury it in the ground. It was common. But it was no way to carry on a business with the specific intent to earn a profit. The slave had not been given the responsibility to protect the master's resources. Again, that's not what entrust means. He's not saying entrust, guard it with your life, keep it for me and give it back to me when I come back. No, it was specifically given to take and use and invest to not waste this opportunity, to use it wisely for his master's profit. And even though he had been given fewer resources than the first two slaves, he had the same obligation to use what he had to his maximum ability. And that's what it means when it says he entrusted them according to their ability. Instead of maximizing the opportunity, what does he do? He wastes it. What a contrast. Well, the second step to properly respond to spiritual opportunities is to react rightly. To be faithful, to take advantage of every opportunity to faithfully serve and obey, to use the unique abilities and resources that God has given you for the Lord. There's a third step. Recall the reckoning. See, it's not enough to receive the responsibility. It's not enough to react rightly. You have to recall the reckoning. There is a day of reckoning, and it's coming We find this in verses 19 to 27. Verse 19 says, Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Now the exact length of time the owner was gone is not mentioned here. We don't know. We don't know how long it was. All that we know is that it was a long time. And let me put this in the perspective of history. From the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, how many years has it been, roughly? Are we still waiting for the master to come back? Yeah, a little bit over 2,000 years. We're still waiting. Still waiting. And what did the master do? Well, again, verse 19, came and settled accounts with them. Again, the first order of business upon the master's return was to determine what the slaves had done with the business, with the assets. This is accountability. There will be a time of accountability. And I can just see him marching in unexpectedly through the front door. The slaves are hastily preparing themselves. I mean, this third slave is like, now where did I bury that thing? Where's my shovel? I mean, there's holes all over the ground. Okay, is there gophers? I mean, we have gophers in the backyard. What's going on? No, it's that slave. Apparently, he drew the map upside down. X does not mark the spot. And he's rushing to prepare himself, and there's still dirt clinging to his hands as he hastily brings his one talent that he dug in the ground to present to the masters. I can just see it. The first thing the master does is sit down at the main table, open up the business ledger to see how much profit each slave made off of what was entrusted to him. Time's up. Did they take full advantage of this opportunity given them or not? 
And again, in the context of this sermon, which is known as the Olivet Discourse, because he's on the Mount of Olives teaching this, so they call it the Olivet Discourse, Jesus repeatedly states that his second coming will be at a time that is unexpected. Look at uh, 24.3. Matthew 24.3, Jesus says, And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples want to know. Christ, you're talking about this. When are you going to come? When is this going to happen? Verse 36 of Matthew 24. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son. Christ is saying, I don't even know. He says, but the Father alone Verse 42, therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Verse 44, for this reason you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Verse 50, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at the hour which he does not know. Are you seeing a pattern here? 25, 13 says this, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. And why is it when you go in the Christian bookstores, there's all these books where they're trying to figure out the day and the hour? It's like, do you have a different version than I do? That seems pretty clear. We don't know. There's your book. Chapter one, we don't know. The end. You want to get published, there it is. When is the master coming back? He's been gone a long time. It's easy to forget, isn't it? Is he coming back? I don't know. Well, he said he was coming back. Do you know when? Do you know when? No, I don't know when he's coming back. When is it? At a time when we least expect it. We don't know when Christ is going to come back, but it's going to happen. Could happen any day, any moment. We must be prepared to demonstrate that we have used our mind, our body, our possessions, our very life to further his kingdom, his glory while here on earth. Paul echoes this. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Again, Paul echoes this. We use this passage in counseling a lot to remind us of one of our main purposes, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Paul says, Therefore also we have as our ambition, this is our goal, our desire, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, to Christ, to the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or or bad. The judgment seat of Christ, every true Christian will come before the judgment seat of Christ and will be judged by the Lord based on what they did or did not do. And there will be reward or lack of reward based on our life. And so what is our ambition? What's our goal? What drives us to do the things we do, to spend our money the way we spend it, to spend our time the way we do? To be pleasing to him. I mean, if you take an inventory of your life right now, would you say you could check the pleasing to the Lord box in your speech, your thoughts, the way you are using your money, the way you drive, the way you talk to your kids, your husband, your wife, your work ethic? I mean, is it all being done to the glory of God to be pleasing to him, pleasing to the Lord, pleasing to the Lord, pleasing to the Lord? We don't know the day or the hour, but Christ is coming. And there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a judgment. Back in Matthew 25, verse 20. He's back. The master's settling accounts with them. And then notice the one who would receive the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more. 
And then in verse 23, the two-talent slave basically does and says the same thing. Verse 22. Again, the first two slaves are called before the master. They give an account. Are they afraid? Why? That's okay. I like response. Are they afraid? No. Why? What did they have to be afraid of? They were faithful. I don't know about you, but my dad used to give me a job. I hated it, weeding the garden. Anyone feel my pain and my blisters and my aching back and my hurting? I know, it's just how can you not complain, right? You're not supposed to complain, but when you have to weed, it's not fun. If you like to weed, I don't know what's wrong with you, but we have counseling. Because <laughs> it's not fun. Well, I figured out pretty easily when it came to weeding, there's two ways to weed a garden, my way and my dad's way. My way was very simple. Take a rake and chop all the weeds off at the top. It took like five, ten minutes, and I was done, and I would go do what I wanted to do anyway, which is anything other than weeding. When my dad came home a couple days later, my dad called me into his bedroom. You think I was excited to go in there? Called me out to the yard. Uh, Chris, can you come out here for a second? Ugh. Was I afraid? Why? Because I wasn't faithful. Because what happens to weeds that you cut out the tops off of? Yeah, amazing. They grow back. What's up with that? I was like cursing them. I curse you as I chop you off. Die. Die. Didn't work. But when I would weed the garden the right way and my dad called me over, it wasn't my dad calling me over. Who was it calling who over? Dad, come look at what I did. Look, you see the job I did? Come on, did you see it? Look what I did. I actually used a shovel and one of those picky things. <laughs> Nothing to fear. I did the job right. I couldn't wait for him to see what I had done. I have to picture that these, the first two slaves are coming before the, the masters there. Are they expectantly waiting? Yes, because they were faithful. They did it. They're like, come and see, Lord, what I did for you. Again, that's key, isn't it? Because we could very easily say, hey, Lord, look what I did for you. <laughs> you see all this ministry? That person's a Christian because of me. I mean, the arrogance of it. If we're not careful. So again, the motive of our heart is important. But I have to picture these first two slaves coming before the Lord, and he's got the, the log book out, and he's going to settle the accounts and check, and they're like, look, master, look. I took what you gave me, and it's double. It's double. Did they test? Did they pass this test of accountability? Did they pass? Absolutely. Notice his response is the same for both of them. Verse 21 says, The master said to them, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. They both get the same response. First, the master commends their character by calling them good and faithful. You were good. You were faithful. Their godly character evidenced itself through faithful deeds, resulting in the fruit of their labor. Because from the mouth speaks the heart. What's on the inside is going to come out. Second, he says, I will put you in charge of many things. Many things. Not only will the Lord entrust greater earthly tasks to those who prove themselves faithful, but their heavenly reward will be opportunity for greater service to him throughout eternity. And then he saves the best for last as he shares with them the joy of the master. This divine joy that Christ promised us is fully realized when sin's taint is removed and we are brought to the presence of Christ in heaven experiencing an ultimate Everlasting joy. 
I mean, how do you communicate that? How, how do you, I have a hard time fully comprehending what the joy of heaven is going to be like. To be face to face with the one who gave his life for me, who went to the cross to die so that I could have life, as opposed to what I deserved. How do I express that face to face joy and thankfulness of seeing my Savior? The taint of sin removed. A joy that never gets old, it never gets boring. I mean, even Rocky Road ice cream, after a while, you can only eat so much of that stuff. And joy turns to what? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it does turn to fat. Thank you for that reminder. And maybe puking and maybe sour tummy. And I mean, you know, it's like heaven, it's never going to get old. It's never going to get boring. It's never going to get like, hey, you know, can we crank this up a little bit? You know. I mean, I know it's 1 to 10, but can we make it an 11? No, it's already perfect. The joy of heaven in Christ is already great. It's perfect. It's ultimate. I mean, how much better can it get than ultimate? You're like, Chris, I can't comprehend that. I know. I can't either. Words fail to describe what it's going to be like to be in heaven with our Lord and Savior where there's no tears and there's no suffering and there's no pain and it never gets boring. And you get to serve the Lord unencumbered. You don't get tired. Everyone sings and you sing with the right motive all the time and you think about the words and you don't fall asleep when Jesus is talking like sometimes you do when Pastor Ramey preaches. I know it's not, you know, you don't try to fall asleep, but I mean, that's never going to happen in heaven. joy and so he says enter into the joy of your master and then we come to the third and again in contrast verses 24 and 25 what do we see just as the third slave had a very different reaction to the responsibility given him by the master so too does he have a different response to the day of reckoning the day of reckoning is upon him Rather than presenting to the master earnings, he instead presents an accusatory, self-serving excuse. Notice he says master in verse 24. Master. Why does he call him master? Did he do anything with what had been entrusted him? Was he faithful? No. Why is he saying master? Well, I think the point, he's identifying himself as a believer before Christ's second coming. He's saying, I'm following you. Can we think of another passage in Matthew 7? Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? We did all this for you. We're followers of you, Lord. And what does Jesus say? You did pretty well. Come on in. You tried hard. Is that what he says? Christ says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Depart from me. It's possible for someone to profess to be a follower of Christ, to say, Master, I follow you. You're my Lord. To even say things and do things and wear Christian clothing and listen to Christian music and go to Christian school and come to church and be a good person and not know Jesus. And so you are a professing Christian unbeliever. <laughs> His master. He was not at all concerned with benefiting his master through fruitful service. He wasn't focused on being faithful. I mean, it doesn't, the story doesn't tell us what he was doing during this time. All we know is he dug it, and that's it. But notice he also did not have a correct perception of his master. Because in his arrogance, he showed his true allegiance only to himself by calling the character of his master into question. Notice what he says. He says, Master, in verse 24, I knew you to be a hard man. What is he saying? You know, someone's like, well, if someone says I'm hard, it means I'm ripped. Can you see it? Chris is hard. Yeah, I know. Is that what he means? 
No, I think it means unmerciful, unloving. You were hard. You're a hard master, not easy to follow or serve. He doesn't stop there. He says, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. You know what he's saying when he says that? You're going into other people's fields where they scattered seed, where they are growing things, and you took someone else's produce. That's what he means. You're money hungry? You're stealing? Apparently this guy was not trained in customer relations. And so in verse 25, how does he respond? He says, I was afraid. I was afraid. Again, his unregenerate heart could not produce true reverential awe, respect, instead producing an arrogant fear of irreverent and arrogant contempt. He was unrepentant and self-focused to the end. He justifies his actions. It's not my fault, master. It's yours. You're hard. And again, the church today is full of people like this. They profess Christ with their lips, but their heart is far from the Lord. Their lives are devoid of the fruit of salvation, good works that honor God, worship that exalts God, and a reverential awe of a holy God. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through works. Are we saved by works, by good deeds? No. What does Paul say? Through faith. And even that faith we have is a gift from God. But in verse 10, we are his workmanship. Created what? Once God saves you, he regenerates you and gives you a nature to fulfill the good works that he's put before you. Works don't save us, but true saving faith will produce fruit. Because if you're connected to the vine, what's going to happen? You're going to grow. You're going to produce fruit. And that's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So in verses 26 to 27, they record the master's response to the slave's rationalization. Notice what he says. He says, his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave, you wicked. He calls him wicked. He unjustly tarnished the character of his master. He says he was lazy. He did nothing with the talent entrusted to him. And again, by repeating the charges that the slave leveled against him, the master was not validating what he said. It's as if the master is saying something like this. If you thought I demand a return, even on that which does not belong to me, did you think I would not require a return on that which does belong to me? At least you could have put it in the bank, earned interest on it. That's really what the master is saying here. The master is angry with the slave not simply because he lost potential profit, but also because the slave wasted this opportunity. And because the first two slaves were eagerly awaiting the return of their master, they used every opportunity to serve the Lord before his return. And of course, in contrast, the third slave did not expect the master's return. Wasn't he probably even thinking about it? Just foolishly put aside what God had given him, went about his selfish business. And again, what motivated him? Well, what's it to me? What benefit do I get out of this? Have you ever asked God that? God, you're asking me to give up a lot. And even in evangelism, sometimes we'll say, what's the benefit of becoming a Christian? Heaven? I saw that on a cartoon channel once. Not interested. What's the benefit? Maybe that's what he was saying. What's the benefit of heaven? What's the benefit of following Jesus, of this Christianity thing? When the day of reckoning came, the slave's fear drove him to justify, to excuse an attack. Again, when the master comes on the day of reckoning to settle accounts with you, what's your response going to be? When he opens the book, looks at your name, are you going to make excuses why you squandered opportunity to serve in the local church? 
Chris, you don't understand. I'm really busy. Work is really demanding. I, I, I don't have time. Maybe I'll serve later when I have more time. Maybe you're going to blame God for only giving you two talents, not five. God, if only you gave me more ability, more resources. You know, if I had more money, I could work less, and then I'd have more time to serve you, and on and on and on. Maybe you're going to receive God's resources with an open hand. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I'll take one of those. Yes, thank you. A little bit of health. Thank you very much. Only to say, well, I'll get serious about God later. I have time. I mean, you have more time, right? Because you know when the day of reckoning is coming. Remember my book? We don't know when, period, the end. How much time do you have before you come face to face with eternity? And the day of reckoning is upon you. And maybe some of you, and I pray for you, Maybe you hear the gospel. Maybe you come to this church or another church and you've heard the truth. You've heard the message. And that message of the gospel, you've looked at it and said, "Eh, what's it to me? And you bury it in the ground. And when that day of reckoning comes and you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he says, why should I let you into my kingdom? What are you going to say? I tried hard. I went to church. I didn't murder anybody. I I only got drunk like three times. I tried to be a good person. What are you going to say? Because there is only one answer. Lord, you are my God, and I have sinned. And I deserve damnation and hell. Will you forgive me of my sin? I confess it. I repent of my sin. And I put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. That is it. That is the only right response that you and I can make. What will be your response? You must recall the reckoning Because it's coming. And that's the third step. Judgment is coming. Don't forget, you're going to get what's coming to you. Well, there's a fourth step, just quickly. Remember the reward. Remember the reward, verses 28 to 30. So how does the master respond to this? He says, take away the talent from him. Give it to the one who has the ten talents. Isn't that interesting? The guy started with five talents, Apparently, the master gave him not only the five that he started with, but gave him the five that he made. And then what does he do? Five plus five is, help me out, ten. And then he takes the one talent from that guy and gives it to him. Now he has eleven. Again, I don't want to read too much into this, but I think at the very least we can say God is being very generous and rewarding the faithful. There's something about faithfulness. God responds well to it. Here on earth, certainly. I'm not preaching health, wealth, prosperity message. God blesses the obeyer of the word of God. That's what James says, right? The doer of the word will be blessed in what he does. We know that. But even in heaven, the reward will be multiplied. What is that going to look like? That's not, I don't have time for all of that. I just know that that, I think, is what he's emphasizing here. God's going to be generous. Maybe that's part of the many things that the master's talking about in verse 21. You were faithful in a little. I'm going to give you many things. But those who demonstrate by their unproductiveness, their unfaithfulness, they do not belong to God, will lose even the benefits of the general grace that they once had. The divine principle in these verses is that those who trust in Christ will gain everything and those who do not trust in him will lose it all. See, this third slave was not simply unfaithful but faithless. There's a significant difference between an unfaithful believer and a faithless unbeliever. Stick with me. This is important. 
An unfaithful believer is different than a faithless unbeliever. Because again, according to 1 Corinthians 3.15, a true Christian who wastes his or her abilities, spiritual gifts, and opportunities will have their work burned up, shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. There are Christians who waste opportunity. They don't lose their salvation. They still go to heaven. They just don't get rewarded because they wasted and squandered it here on earth. They got their reward here. Their reward is going to match their pitiful service. But the person represented by this third slave, however, has no faith at all and therefore no saving relationship with God. No matter how much he may appear to serve the Lord, work in the church, do good deeds, study the Bible, worship God, live like the religious Pharisees of Jesus' day, it's all done for show. And God is never fooled. And so in verse 30, what does the master say? Again, verse 29, everyone who has shall more be given. He shall have an abundance from the one who does not have. Even what he does have shall be taken away. And then verse 30, there's punishment. Cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping, gnashing of teeth. Worthless, good for nothing, useless. Outer darkness. It's a common New Testament description of what? God is light. In him is no darkness at all. So a place that is dark is a place where God's presence is absent. And we call that place what? Hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. When I was a police officer in Los Angeles, I remember coming up on a scene of an accident where someone's leg basically bent a wrong way and the bone was sticking out like this much. You ever seen that? This person was like, hey, do you have like a baby aspirin or something? This kind of hurts a little bit. They weren't responding that way. You know how they were responding? What are they doing? What is this? Gnashing of teeth. Why do we gnash our teeth? The pain is so intense, we can hardly stand it. And in fact, God designed our bodies to do what when the pain gets too intense? You lose consciousness. Do you realize in this place, where there is not only weeping and sadness and gnashing of teeth, the pain is so intense you can't bear it, and it never goes away, and you never lose consciousness, and it is unbearable agony for all of eternity. That's what happens to this worthless slave. And so too will happen to every person who hears the good news of Jesus Christ and rejects Jesus, rejects the cross, rejects the free gift of salvation. There will be a day of reckoning and there will be reward for those who receive him and there will be punishment for those who reject him. And it is unbearable weeping and gnashing of teeth in outer darkness where God removes his grace in his presence. And some of you are here tonight, you know you're not ready for this day of reckoning. You're not going to receive reward. You're not going to have an abundance. You're going to lose it all. It's the punishment of a life of wasted opportunity. And I'm begging you tonight, take advantage of the opportunity that God is giving you right now to respond. You don't have to pray a prayer. You don't have to come up on the stage. You don't have to raise your hand. You can, right where you're at, pray and say, God, I recognize I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I put my faith and my trust in Christ. Because as we saw in tonight's parable, you do not know how much time you have left. Well, the fourth step to properly respond to spiritual opportunities is to remember the reward. The thought of reward or even punishment should motivate us toward Christ. Well, in the conclusion, the parable of the talents, we've observed four steps to properly respond to spiritual opportunities. Receive the responsibility. React rightly. Recall the reckoning. Remember the reward. 
Christian, are you truly using every opportunity of every second of every day to show that Christ is the most precious treasure of your existence, that money and fame and fortune and possessions are all gladly sacrificed for the sake of exalting the name of Jesus Christ? Can you say that tonight? Is he enough? Is he your all? Are you heavenly minded? Are you focused on that joy that is awaiting you when the master says, come into my presence, come into my joy? Do you think about that? Does that motivate you? Does it drive you? In the way you parent your kids and your work ethic, does it motivate your family life, your involvement in church, the way you interact with unbelievers in your community or work. God has given you his resources so that you might responsibly invest your life in his work for his glory. You don't have to be a superstar, but you do need to be faithful to use what God's given you. Are you investing it? Will you give up anything that you love more than serving and loving Christ? Will you be faithful in work and worship to Christ? When that day of reckoning comes and the master arrives to settle accounts with you, will you hear these words? Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a sobering passage because on one hand it talks about what happens to those of us who take your good gifts, who take your resources, who take the gospel and use it on us. Reject Christ. It is sobering. It is terrifying. And I pray, Lord God, if there is anyone here tonight that does not know you, that does not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that does not recognize their need for a Savior. That by the power of your word, through the power of your spirit, you would break their heart and bring them to repentance and faith. And Lord, there may be some here tonight who are saved. They do love you. But they're in a place where they recognize they have not been using your resources appropriately. They have not been investing everything that you've given them to do the work of the kingdom. Heaven, haven't thought about it in years. Lord, I pray that you give them the grace to recommit, to react rightly to the responsibility that you've given them through Christ, to give you glory, to love your church, serve your church, to edify and equip the saints so that they would go out and reach the lost with the gospel. And Lord, there may be still others here who are faithful and who are serving you with joy. Lord, I know that pleases you and you are honored in it. And so I pray that you would sustain them, that you would continue to enable them to appropriate all that they have in Christ and that they would be more and more useful to you in your kingdom. Heavenly Father, it's a joy to serve you. It's a joy to know you, and your commandments are not burdensome. And so I pray that you enable us to be the kind of servants, like Christ, humble, teachable, who use everything we have for you and your glory. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.